You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 26th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. North Korea resumes its shenanigans. Brazil has a few days left to make a big decision. And what skills does the modern spy really need? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Isabel Hilton and John Everard will discuss all the day's big stories and our On This Day historical feature will recall history's most famous showdown. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Isabel Hilton, international journalist and visiting professor at King's College London's Lao Institute, and by the former British diplomat, John Everard. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Just before we plough on to the affairs of the world, uh, recent history, if it has taught us anything, and let's face it, it hasn't, but it has taught us that if we're going to express thoughts and feelings on the appointment of a new British Prime Minister, we'd best be quick. So just on the accession of Rishi Sunak, um, a reaction from you, Isabel? Um, Yeah, sort of, I would say (laughs) B minus. I think think his cabinet has been a bit of a disappointment. Um, And, uh, well, we'll see. At least, you know, at least he's still there at the end of the day. That's, that's, I guess, something. He is probably more accustomed to paying other people to assemble cabinets for him. Amusing joke there based on the potential double meaning of the word cabinet, John. <laughs> yes, uh, I don't think I can match the, the, the intellectual <laughs> subtlety of that joke. But uh, what do I think of Rishi Sunak's ascension? Firstly, I mean, anything is better than what came before. Uh, so the man is still in a kind of uh, uh, a, 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 a new boy glow. Uh, his cabinet, disappointing but inevitable. I mean, he came to office saying he was going to uh, make do unity. And to do unity, you've got to bring in people. I can see Isabella's eyes are about to hit the ceiling here. Uh, You've got to bring in people that other people might not so much approve of. So you get this rather strange mix of people. Uh, I mean, so far, so more or less okay, I'd say. I, I think the challenges will finally overwhelm him. I don't think anybody can sort out this mess. And I think he's doomed to the next election. But let's see. I agree with that. But I think that, you know, he, there was every excuse not to put Suella Braverman back in at as Home Secretary. So if he had to do that, you know, he's he's clearly hostage to the same bad forces in the party that every previous Prime Minister has been since um, 2016. So, well, and um, for decades before. And, and the for decade decades before. after. Yeah, yes, yeah. That, that is the way that the Conservative Party works. Yes. And yes, he is hostage to them. Uh, the prize the for the are. most original interpretation of events though, goes to a Chinese commentator who said that actually Liz Trust failed not because she was incompetent, hopeless and the worst Prime Minister in living memory, but because she was far too woke and left-wing. <laughs> <laughs> and that the appointment of all these non-white people in her cabinet demonstrated that, you know, she was a prisoner of wokery and therefore failed. Liz Truss, prisoner of wokery. You heard that here first. Rishi Sunak has, of course, another seven weeks to go before he tips her out to avoid becoming Britain's shortest-serving Prime Minister. Will he make it? Stay tuned. Uh, but we will start tonight's show proper with one of John's former bailiwicks, North Korea, which seems to be increasingly of the view that what with one thing and another, it has been paid insufficient attention of late. The weirdo hermit kingdom has been throwing a considerable tantrum, prompting an exchange of 
warning shots by sailing a merchant ship into South Korean waters, sending fighter planes to buzz the edges of South Korean airspace, launching several ballistic missiles, firing hundreds of salvos of, our, of artillery rather at the increasingly deaf fish of the Sea of Japan, and launching one missile over Japan itself, anticipating what may be the next stunt. Japan, South Korea, and the United States have issued a combined warning against any new nuclear tests. Um, John, an unparalleled response uh, is being adumbrated. What would that entail? Uh, probably not very much. I, I mean, there's frankly... An not unparalleled very, not very much. An unparalleled not very much. Yes, an unparalleled, rather limp-wristed, don't-do-this-again <laughs> response. These, the, 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 the Western powers simply don't have much left in their arsenal of unparalleled responses uh, <laughs> to, to bring anything new out. And North Korea knows that. North Korea knows that the chance of getting further sanctions past the UN Security Council are vanishingly small. Uh, Russia and China have vetoed previous efforts. They'll veto anything else that the US and its allies uh, put on the table. Uh, a military response is simply not being considered. Uh, where do you go from there? Shouting and stamping of fists. That's it. Um, Isabel, this statement is coming, as I noted, from Japan, South Korea and the United States. But how impressed do we think China would be by any nuclear tests by North Korea? And is it possible that Beijing has communicated via back channels how impressed or otherwise they might be? Well, I thought it was significant that uh, that Kim did not do it to coincide with the 20th Party Congress. Which, which, and he has in the past. He has definitely spoiled the Chinese party by, by um, displays of this kind in the past. So he may have been sat on and told that if he, if he does want China's support and he needs China's support, that you know he should let the 20th Party Congress pass before he does anything more uh, severe. Beyond that... I'm I'm not sure that China, what, what China's concern would be, uh, would be whatever is going to trigger Japan to become a nuclear power, which it could do fairly mm. quickly. And, you know, the more things become uncertain and the more of this kind of threat you get, the louder the voices in Japan for that policy finally to, to, to come home. And I think China would not find that at all reassuring. So there may be some calibration. But, you know, the Chinese have not been terribly successful at keeping North Korea in line in the past. You know, North Korea at times makes a point of, of showing that it's not entirely dependent on China. We'll come back shortly to Japan's range of options. But John, to go back to North Korea, is there any rhyme or reason to this latest bout of kicking off? Do they want something in particular? They want attention. Uh, they want help. They want out from the sanctions. That's the external reason, if you like. Have another... they considered not acting like massive jackasses for a bit? Yeah, they tried that. didn't work. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the sanctions weren't relieved and uh, the North Korea found itself in an even worse mess at the end of the detente than it did at the beginning. So they won't try that again in a hurry. But there's another angle to this that I don't think has been really brought out in the media, that uh, North Korea internally is in deep trouble. Mm. 17 October, Kim Jong-un makes an extraordinary speech to uh, the, the party cadre school, admitting, in effect, that Park, a lot of cadres are simply not loyal to him. Uh, this is all dressed up uh, in demands for more ideological education, excluding nasty, corrupting things like South Korean soap operas, uh, but also uh, in joining cadres, senior cadres, to make junior cadres like blank slates, said Kim Jong-un, uh, so receptive to as well. This is a man who is quite clearly sitting on top of an apparat that 
isn't functioning. His mm. government machine is breaking down. This came out also in the great wash-up section after uh, COVID in North Korea, where, of course, the regime patted itself on the back, said how well it did. But then speaker after speaker came out saying what a wonderful person Kim Jong-un was, but how difficult this had been because their officials, including their soldiers, the military had the same problem, simply did not obey orders. People just sat on their hands rather than obey an order from the very top in a major national emergency. I suspect that quite a lot of what he's doing in terms of these glorious firework displays to which we're all being treated is to distract attention from internal problems, the age-old trick. You pick up a, a foreign enemy, you try to rally the nation behind you as you counter an imaginary external threat, and you hope that the internal divisions fade away. Uh, to go back to Japan, Isabel, you, you mentioned and or alluded to that conversation that has been going on in Japan for ages about whether or not it can or should repudiate Article 9, I think it is, of its constitution, which commits it uh, to a course of pacifism, although it has been operating a somewhat conveniently hypocritical so-called self-defence force for some time, which is, of course, an extremely serious military. Um, is it imaginable that if North Korea pulls that stunt with increasing regularity, the launching missiles over Japan in particular, that Japan might start taking the view of do that one more time and we're coming down there? I don't know about coming down there, but certainly the idea that Japan would finally become a nuclear power would, would be very much on the table. Um, and, you know, if you think about the many dangers inherent in the in the region right now, you've got mm. everything from... Taiwan, where, you know, if you were to be a military, Chinese military planner looking at invading Taiwan, you would have to attack American assets in the, in the neighborhood, mm. many of which are in Okinawa. So you would, you know, you have a threat from there. And you have the, you know, North Korea uh, does remain, and I don't think North Korea actually wants to launch a war, but it is a, an unpredictable power and it can do some damage without entirely intending to so i think japan is is definitely under pressure to to have a much more serious posture in terms of its own defense simply because public opinion in japan which has you know historically been hostile since mm. world war ii is moving in that direction it's beginning to look you know pretty iffy in that neighborhood uh, John, just a final thought on that. Is, is some sort of nuclear arms race in that part of the world actually imaginable because it wouldn't just be North Korea, China, you would have to imagine, would take an exceedingly dim view of Japan or even perhaps South Korea uh, arming themselves such. Yes, China would take a very dim view of any more nuclear powers in the region. It probably doesn't like North Korea having nuclear weapons, uh, but what China would do about it remains unclear. Uh, Japan could develop uh, nuclear weapons really very quickly. They've got the technology, they've got the manufacturing base. South Korea probably not much longer. Uh, back in the 1980s, I think it was, the Americans had to stop the South Koreans from mm. developing nuclear weapons, uh, shut down a program. They got quite a long way down the road. They know how to do it. Uh, on nuclear weapons, just a footnote on the nuclear test. Uh, frighteningly, the North Koreans have prepared not one, but two test tunnels uh, in their major test site. Uh, if they do go ahead and test, and who knows whether the Chinese sat upon them, it is going to be one great big bang.
Well, let's look now at Moscow, where despite events, the latest annual conclave of the Valdai International Discussion Club is proceeding. This fixture, launched in 2004, is a talking shop at which senior Russian officials, including the most senior Russian official, deign to interact with politicians, boffins and hacks, including foreign politicians, boffins and hacks, not a few of whom have doubtless spent some of the last eight months scrubbing any such references from their LinkedIn profiles. The theme for this year's Valdai Wingding is The World After Hegemony, Justice and Security for All, and Why Not? Reports suggest that President Vladimir Putin will be making his usual appearance. Um, Isabel, first of all, do you have any thoughts yourself on the world after hegemony? <laughs> well, depends how we get to the post-hegemony uh, uh, state, which um, at the moment doesn't doesn't look terribly much on the cards. But I would say that I, it, we would be foolish to imagine that there are not countries and indeed people and politicians who who agree with uh, with Putin. I've, I've just been on a rather extended and curious itinerary trip, uh, which included being in Nepal, for example, mm. where I found myself in conversation with otherwise liberal and intelligent politicians who were arguing quite fiercely the Putin line on Ukraine, that it was NATO's fault, that, you know, you, Ukraine was essentially an, a NATO asset, which Putin had to neutralize. So we shouldn't assume that the conversation that is taking place in Moscow is entirely disconnected from opinion in quite a lot of the majority world. It's not, it's, we are not necessarily winning this argument. Uh, John, Sergei Lavrov, Russian's foreign minister, has already done a turn of sorts at Valdai. He is once again uh, telegraphing this idea of Ukraine deploying a dirty bomb, a nuclear or nuclear-adjacent weapon in Ukraine. It is not clear to, I think, many sane observers why Ukraine would choose to nuke itself. So is that kind of... Is, it was Isabel basically just there describing the audience for this nonsense? I think the audience uh, probably goes wider than that. This is aimed worldwide. This is Russia preparing the ground for an escalation, or at least giving itself the option of such an escalation. One hopes that they don't have any plans to detonate a dirty bomb themselves and to blame it on the Ukrainians. That really would be a very bad idea. That that is the scenario that people are suggesting Lavrov is is rolling the pitch for. Yes, indeed. Uh, And that would be, of course, a, a, a tragedy and a disaster. Um, the Valdai uh, Conference produces every year a report. This year's report is utterly chilling. Uh, it's uh, it's a, a description of a world that I don't think any of us here would recognise, all about sort of 18th century style superpower rivalries. Nothing in there at all about uh, working together for common goods, multilateral efforts, uh, global problems. This is all about Russia as a great power having to stand up for itself all about the end of the U.S. uh, hegemony or even hegemony. Uh, And you asked us a minute ago uh, what happens after that. The report goes into this in great detail. Conflict. We go back to the world system such as it was before the First World War, where great powers kept having to micro-adjust their borders using military force. Constant minor border wars, constant warfare, the era of long peace is over. And only when we get through this phase, uh, says the, 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 the debate, 
do we reach the sunlit uplands of a new international order? Doesn't sound very nice. Uh, Isabel, does it make any particular sense, Russia's craving of that kind of scenario that John and indeed the Valdai Talking Shops report outlines? Because by current standards, Russia in, Russia is, if Russia is trying to create that sort of scenario, they're not doing terrifically well at it. Um, they're not doing as well as I think they might have hoped they would do. Um, but it does it it does echo quite a lot of the um, quite a lot of the thoughts that were expressed in the Sino-Russian statement of February the fifth. If you remember, there was a statement of the uh, limitless friendship of China and mm. Russia, and a common worldview. And that worldview did uh, did. I attribute all the world's troubles to the hegemony of the United States, and there is there is a view that they have developed together, and which finds quite a lot of echo in in what used to be we used to describe as the non-aligned states. That American hegemony is used for the not for the benefit of mankind, but for the benefit of the United States. That the rules were devised by the United States again in its own interests, and that it was time to challenge them. Whilst they share that perception, I think that the Chinese would, on the whole, not embrace the um, the image of the world that, that John has just outlined. Because, you know, what China anticipates is becoming, you know, the main rival mm. to the United States and certainly to creating a sphere of security in its own near abroad. So getting the United States out of, you know, the Pacific and and, and its uh, neighborhood of establishing a technological lead and a sufficient sufficient power in new domain warfare. So space, undersea, digital and all of that to maintain China's uh, autonomy and China's growth. Now, that doesn't fit with a world in which you're constantly firefighting and there is constant conflict. China still needs the world, although it's trying to build a kind of fortress China, but it's still very, very dependent on the world. And the impacts of the Ukraine war have not been particularly beneficial for China. So I don't think that the that the vision of the future really coincides. And I think without China's backing for that future, uh, I think Russia is whistling in the dark. Uh, John, just finally, <clears throat> sorry, on this one, there's sort of a, a diplomatic subtext which has been bubbling away over the last few days, which is that it has been confirmed that Russia's defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, has been having direct conversations uh, with certain of his opposite numbers, uh, notably US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin, uh, UK Defence Secretary uh, Ben Wallace. Is, is that a hopeful sign, not merely that they are talking, but they're announcing that they're talking? Not really. I mean, I, I applaud any kind of contact of this kind. Talking to people in difficult situations is usually a very good idea. But as far as we can make out, and not all the details have been made public, uh, this was largely a dialogue of the death. Uh, <laughs> Shoigu insisting again and again that uh, Ukraine was about to, to detonate a dirty bomb and all the Western partners saying, poo-hoo, no, we protect and they're not going to do anything of the sort. There wasn't, it seems, much talk about bringing the war to any kind of end, let alone of a Russian withdrawal. Well, on Sunday, Brazilians will vote <clears throat> in the second round runoff of their presidential election. The choice is about as stark as these things get between the incumbent, bellicose conservative nationalist Jair Bolsonaro, and a previous president, the left-wing populist Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Polls currently anticipate a victory for Lula, but not nearly as confidently as they did a few weeks, let alone months ago. Win or lose, Bolsonaro has successfully positioned himself as the leader of a 
movement and the figurehead of a personality cult. Um, John, first of all, he does seem uh, Bolsonaro, and I realise he's not alone in this at as among people at the top of a personality cult, a somewhat um, coarse and unsavoury and charmless figure. I think I can say all those things. Is that, though, in this context, a feature rather than a bug? Is that, in fact, why people like him? That's one of the reasons why people like him, uh, particularly because, I mean, he is crude, but he's crude about the establishment. He's crude about a lot of things that many order Brazilians actually quite dislike. Uh, he's like one of these rather difficult members of, you know, that every Brazilian extended family has, uh, <laughs> who can be relied upon to spoil any party he, he goes to. You know, Brazilians can relate to this kind of person. He, he's the uncle about whom everybody says we had him last Christmas. Exactly. Mm. That's, that's, that's just who he is. And and, uh, he probably says quite a lot of what order Brazilians think. Uh, this has been a major shock to Lula's um, PT, to his party, who thought they had the, the working class, so to speak, sewn up. Um, they found that an awful lot of lower class, poor Brazilians, actually quite like Bolsonaro because he is rude about all these people who have lorded it over them in power for so long and looks a bit anti-establishment, even though, of course, he is the establishment incarnate. It's one of those great contradictions. But Isabel, well, that's quite a lot of modern politics on both sides of politics right there, isn't it? I mean, this person may not be competent, they may not be good, they may not actually have accomplished anything, but by golly, they've annoyed the other mob. Uh, there's that, and there's this very, very curious phenomenon, which we see with Trump also, of the incumbent posing as an anti-establishment mm. figure, you know, and, and as an outsider. And, you know, it's particularly absurd in Trump's case where he's, you know, fabulously rich, although not as fabulously rich as he claims to be, um, and president and yet somehow is a truculent outsider. But Bolsonaro is pulling the same thing. I mean, he comes from one of Brazil's, you know, big establishments, the military. You know, he was in he was a politician for many years before he became president. And the idea that he's an outsider is 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 kind of absurd, but he is, as you say, rude. He's also managed to harness uh again, as implausibly as Trump did, the considerable power of the evangelical movement in, mm. in Brazil. And we think of Brazil as a Catholic com country, but, but in fact, for many years, the, the, Cath the Catholic Church has been losing ground to all kinds of extraordinary evangelical movements, which are essentially saying... Um, if you if you give to this particular church, God will reward you with material wealth. And and there was one that I visited years ago in Rio, where where the the cameras would be taken down to the car park underneath this enormous church to be shown the the quality of the cars that were parked there as a kind of evidence that if you were in the congregation, you'd get a Mercedes or you know you'd 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 get a a big car. And that was very attractive kind of raw capitalist message for a lot of people in Brazil who actually have very little chance of, of you know, achieving that. But it held out the same kind of dream. Um, and, of course, Lula's message was entirely different. And, and it turns out slightly less compelling. Lula you know, is essentially a social democrat. He, he handed out a lot of money to the poor, which did a lot of good, and then crashed and burned in a combination of a corruption scandal and the impacts of the global financial crisis, for which Bolsonaro has managed to blame Lula. So, <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, we have in this country seen a government which has been sort of in charge for 12 years trying to blame the opposition for things that are going wrong, John, and we have also 
also seen something similar here in very recent times because Boris Johnson, Boris actual Johnson, Eton, Oxford, Spectator, Telegraph, Mayor of London, Foreign Secretary, Prime Minister, positioned himself as a perpetual anti-establishment outsider, which is just about the most ridiculous thing you could possibly imagine, and yet people bought it. With hair like that, could he do anything else? <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, the, 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 the situation is absurd, but if there's a pattern repeating in different currents. Isabel's quite right. There's another pattern repeating here, that in Brazil, the Catholic Church is the establishment. Mm. So the religious revolt, if you like, uh, the, the move away from Catholicism to the evangelical churches mirrors what is going on in Brazilian politics. But Isabel, just a final quick thought on this. Have we learnt anything about how you run against it? Like we saw here in the United Kingdom... Uh, and at least until recently, Sakir Starmer, the opposition leader, trying to run against Boris Johnson by positioning himself as basically, look, I may be a bit dull, I may not be an exciting speaker, I may not be especially funny, but I have actually done difficult jobs to a relative degree of competence and made something of my life from an unpromising start, etc. But that that kind of message takes a while to percolate through. It does, and it depends what sort of what the nature of the ground on which that message falls is. Mm. And, and, I mean, we're seeing... Now that, that at least in the polling, um, that in this country that we were so fed up with the incompetence and and endless drama of the Tories that you know frankly you know a, a broomstick would would win um, if it promised to sweep up. Um, so let's hope that at least a kind of normal message. And remember, after Thatcher, there was a sigh of relief when John Major came in, mm. who was also rather dull. I mean, he didn't. You know, he didn't last that long. But but there was still there was a kind of welcome um, that, you know, there comes a point where where the noise just because just gets too much. So I, I'm I think actually it's not clear to me that Lula is going to win. And in terms of running against Bolsonaro, I think just Brazil may not be at that point where people are sufficiently fed up uh, to welcome a return of what was actually quite a competent government, but which has managed not to has not managed to to um, present a charismatic front this time round. The charisma is all on the other side. Yes, I, 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 quite. I think there are question marks over whether Lula will actually win. I think there are also question marks over whether, if Lula does win, Bolsonaro will accept the result. Do we have remember? Bolsonaro idolizes Trump, and I can see uh, a, a kind of a legal attempt to overthrow the election results uh, quite as a real possibility. And if it's close, um, that could that could certainly encourage him to do that. And he has already claimed that the voting machines can be interfered with. He will claim a rigged election. Uh, we, yeah, we have been saying for some time that Lula doesn't just need to win this, he needs to win big, and the polls all suggest that he isn't going to. And, and that, I guess, John, just closing on this subject, that only serves to reinforce all over again Bolsonaro's they're trying to keep me down but they can't I'm on your side etc thing doesn't it? Yes it does. Uh, very important to understand that Bolsonaro isn't just a person he's a movement uh, he is the, the new Brazil he is the Messiah it's his second name Messiah uh, and he believes that he is the future um, if a minor thing like some nasty left wing politician winning an election thing um, stands in his way he's like to simply brush it out of the way and charge on.
on? Well, sticking sort of with the established themes of Russia and Brazil, Norwegian police have arrested a Brazilian passport holder who they believe is in fact a Russian spy. The alleged spook was working as a scientist at the University of Tromso, but the local plod saw through his disguise of, one is choosing to assume, lab coat, magnifying glass and Bunsen burner, and slung him in the Huskow pending deportation. This follows several arrests in recent weeks of Russian nationals in Norway flying drones in disconcerting proximity to airports and oil rigs. One such malefactor is the son of a Putin-friendly oligarch, something you might have hoped would have come up at passport control. Um, On which subject, Isabel, first of all, why, why a Brazilian passport? Why would you pick on that nationality if you were a Russian trying to pass yourself off in Norway? I think that question is absolutely beyond my pay grade. (laughs) Never having contemplated putting myself in this position, um, I suppose Brazil, uh, a faraway country which is no threat to Norway, um, plausible, would would every Norwegian be able to recognise a Brazilian accent absolutely with um, certainty? Is this a set of documents and and a backstory that can plausibly be confected? Because after all, you can't just turn up at a university and claim a job. You need a backstory. Maybe in Brazil, maybe Brazilian documents are easier to fake. I, I like to think he got caught, John, because he was massively overdoing it, like turning up to work every day in a floral shirt and drinking fruity cocktails through a twirly straw and, and, and doing the samba during working hours. Yes, what a wonderful vision. I love it. Um, I, but the, the, the witness statement suggests that, in fact, he was a perfectly normal researcher, friendly, easy to get on with, didn't do samba in the workplace, tragically. <laughs> uh, so it may not have been the, the accent that, that gave him away. Uh, they've arrested a lot of people, not just for flying drones. They've also arrested people they believe to have been illegals, as uh, we used to say in the trade, uh, within Norway, uh, placed by Russia under deep cover, not under a diplomatic cover uh, to uh, run agents and to recruit agents. And I suspect that one or other of those talked and put the finger on him. What Was it not the case, John, that the Kims of North Korea were clutching Brazilian passports at one point? Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic. Yes, but yes, very close. <laughs> Did they get caught because they kept turning up to work in floral shirts and doing the samba or the Dominican equivalent? Uh, the f- most famous example was uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, unfortunate half-brother who was caught because he appeared to be wandering around with a, an obviously fake Dominican Republic passport, uh, massively rich and with large bundles of 10,000 yen notes, which most Dominican Republic citizens don't wave around with quite such gay abandon. But what for trying to attend rock concerts and in this rather flimsy uh, disguise. That's the other brother. The other brother, big yes. No, he, he wants <laughs> so to go hard to, to keep up with the Kims. Absolutely, he <laughs> wants to go to Disney World in Tokyo. So. so. See, Isabel, I was quite heartened by this story because I'm always surprised to discover that this sort of old-school undercover stuff still goes on, partly because of the difficulty of getting away with it, uh, as our friend here has discovered, and also partly because what's the point? What can you really find out anymore by going to Tromso that you can't discover with, I don't know, Google Earth and a laptop? Well, mystery to me, mate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I guess they think it's worth it. Or maybe it's just one of those um, occupations 
means that that persists as a sort of zombie occupation because we've always done it this way, and and you know the old school the old school methods are um, are indeed uh, still active. I mean, people do appear still to be leaving notes under rocks in parks for each other. So I, that's a surprise. They get very soggy very quickly. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I take your word for it. I've never actually done this. John, John, do you think there is still value, though, genuinely, in planting somewhere, somebody, an illegal, as you called it, in a place under an assumed identity to see what they can find out at the University of Tromso or somewhere similar? No, but that <laughs> won't stop the Russians doing it. Uh, one of the things we discovered when the Soviet Union collapsed and we had, for a while, access to some quite sensitive files was just how useless these people are. I mean, the the, the Soviet Union had spent huge amounts of money uh, recruiting networks of illegals across the West who did it absolutely no good at all. And a colleague of mine in in SIS who had the unenviable task of having to read through some of these reports said if he ever submitted intelligence of that quality to his his superiors, he would have been sacked on the spot. So uh, illegals, yes. Threat to Western security, probably not. I I did just want to close by asking you each in turn if you have in the line of duty ever assumed any sort of identity or faked your way into anything and I I don't mean trying to get into a gig when you were 16 with your mate's photocopied birth certificate which I may have personally have done once or twice I I will start the ball rolling on this by saying back in the day before absolutely everybody had Google on their phone me and the photographer did get into paranoid sanction struck uh, Serbia I think still just about trading as the Republic of Yugoslavia uh, by pretending not to be journalists, but a it was one of those stories as soon as we started telling it to the border guard, having had to drive there from Budapest because there were no flights, started realising what on earth are we thinking? This is uh, All of a sudden, when you actually say it to another person, especially when that person is wearing a uniform and has the power of arrest, you just realise... Oh, God, this is terrible. We were trying to pitch ourselves as a kind of uh, touring art installation collective, the idea being that that I wrote lyrical poems about Eastern European cityscapes while my colleague took the accompanying photographs. I've never doubted it, Andrew. Well, no, so we, we, we rolled this one out, and I swear you could see that you could see the cogs turning in this border guard's head because we pulled up at his, his little outpost, and, you know, he had a, an espresso on the go and a nice big thick book and a comfortable chair, and it was a nice hot day, and you could see him thinking... If I arrest this pair of idiots, that's 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 going to be my day. I'm going to have to fill out forms and call people, and it's going to be a whole thing. And eventually, uh, he just looked at us, sighed, uttered a phrase I will not repeat, stamped our passports, and waved us back into our car. So, can either of you cap that? Isabel, have you ever pretended to be somebody who you are not? Well, not actually consciously, but I did have a rather wonderful... Uh, travel agent in Hong Kong who who was legendary for being able to get absolutely anyone into China even in the most difficult at times and at, at one point he handed me my passport with my my visa and then he said um, do you want the business cards and I said what business cards <laughs> and he handed over a box of business cards which had me down as the proprietor of an apparel company um, and doing business in China which was slightly embarrassing not a claim I would have made myself but um, but so I suppose that would count my, my husband also a journalist said 
um, it's always best to have on under occupation when occupation mm. was in the passport um, to have a writer rather mm. than journalist because it could be changed to waiter should it <laughs> should it be required. Uh, I mean that that can happen in real life uh, as well with a, with a few poor turns of luck. And, and and John, any any you can tell us about at least. Well, I think <laughs> my, my nearest brush with uh, this kind of faking was I was once detailed off uh, to explore the creation of fake documents in China. We're talking about fake documents in Brazil just now. And way back in the day, uh, there were people who used to live just the other side of Tianmen, um, in on the sleazier parts of Beijing, where if you, you know, knocked three times and coughed in the right way, a door <laughs> would open and you'd be let into a kind of Aladdin's cave of document forgery. So I went and tried this and sure enough, you know, the door was open. I would master the, the cough. And I said, I wanted to, to a, a fake, a, a, a common thing in China, a fake university pass certificate. So they said, certainly, that would be, you know, 100 yuan. Uh, come back tomorrow. So I duly did. And I've, I've still got it to this day, you know, my, 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 my fake university. But as I walked out, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, for 200 yuan, I can make you a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pl- please tell me you coughed up the 200 yuan and you are now an officially certified rocket scientist. That would be amazing. Tragically, I didn't have the money on me, but what a Ah, John Everard and Isabel Hilton, thank you both, as always, for joining us. Finally, on today's show, our On This Day historical series squints through the swinging saloon bar doors at events in Tombstone on October 26th, 1881. It all sounds completely made up, like some confection of Larry McMurtry or John Ford. Lawmen with names like Wyatt and Virgil Earp and Doc Holliday confronting outlaws called Ike and Billy Clanton, known along with their confederates as the Cowboys, near a stable called the OK Corral in a town called Tombstone. But it happened on this day 141 years ago, and in due course both Larry McMurtry and John Ford, among many others, would depict the gunfight at the OK Corral. McMurtry in his novel Telegraph Days. Suddenly the herbs and the cowboys bumbled into one another. The latter had been ambling out toward the street, not really expecting it to be so full of herbs. Probably the Earps supposed that they could easily stare down the cowboys, as they had stared down so many of their kind. But this time, the two groups were too close together for the staring down to take effect. Ford, in his film My Darling Clementine. Which one of you killed James? I did. And the other one too. I'm going to kill you. There was also the probably inevitable song by Frankie Lane, which served as the theme for a later film about the gunfight at the OK Corral. OK Corral OK to the legendary showdown on October 26th, 1881, tension had been brewing for some while in Tombstone between the Earps and the Cowboys. Matters were brought to a head by a new city ordinance banning the toting of weapons inside the city limits. Open carry laws are not a new controversy in American life. 
The cowboys declared that anyone who wanted them disarmed was going to have to disarm them. Enforcing Tombstone's laws was the burden of Virgil Earp, Tombstone's marshal. His brothers, Wyatt and Morgan, who both had backgrounds in law enforcement, were natural allies. Doc Holliday was perhaps less so as a dentist turned dissolute gambler and gunslinger, but he was an old friend of Wyatt's. Nobody knows who fired first. When the shooting stopped, three cowboys were dead. All of the lawmen bar Wyatt Earp sustained wounds. The following morning's report in Tombstone's newspaper, The Epitaph, and it's still publishing, incidentally, was both aghast and agog. The feeling among the best class of our citizens is that the marshal was entirely justified in his efforts to disarm these men and that being fired upon, they had to defend themselves, which they did most bravely. If the present lesson is not sufficient to teach the cowboy element that they cannot come into the streets of Tombstone in broad daylight, armed with six-shooters and Henry rifles to hunt down their victims, then the citizens will most assuredly take such steps to preserve the peace as will be forever a bar to such raids. However, the gunfight at the OK Corral was not an end to the matter. Billy Claiborne, one of two outlaws to have survived the gunfight, lasted barely another year. He was shot dead in Tombstone's Oriental Hotel. It now hosts live daily gunfight reenactments and karaoke four evenings a week. Claiborne's last mistake was sassing buckskin Frank Leslie, a gunslinger best known to that point for having married the widow of one of his previous victims. The other ne'er-do-well to escape death at the OK Corral, Ike Clanton, was shot dead by a police officer six years later. It is hard to know what kind of posthumous consolation it might have been to be played by William Shatner in an outstandingly odd OK Corral-themed episode of Star Trek. Since when does a Clanton run crawling to the law for help? How else is he going to get justice? From this! You and your boys set up this whole thing to take care of the Earps! It's a little late to decide you don't have the belly for it. It's not too late. Sheriff. Sheriff. There must be plenty of decent people in this town who don't like the Earps. Let's organize. In the few months after the gunfight, Virgil and Morgan Earp were the victims themselves of revenge attacks by associates of the cowboy faction. Virgil maimed, Morgan killed. Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday and two further Earps, Warren and James, got up a posse to ride their assailants down. They killed four. Doc Holliday died of tuberculosis a few years later. Wyatt Earp, incredibly, lived until he was 80. He spent his later years in Hollywood and some of his retirement loitering around Western movie sets, including those of John Ford. We became quite friendly. And I didn't know anything about the OK Corral at the time, but Harry Carey knew about it, and he asked uh, Wyatt, and Wyatt described the fight fully, exactly the way that you did it. As a matter of fact, he drew it out on paper, a sketch of the entire thing, and that's a... Wyatt said I was not a good shot. I did close to a man. And that's exactly what you did. Hollywood legend insists that one of the people Earp met on set was a young prop handler and aspiring actor from small-town Iowa, on whom Earp clearly made an impression, John Wayne. The actual gunfight at the OK Corral is reckoned to have lasted maybe a minute, if that. Its echoes have been rather more resonant. 
And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Isabel Hilton and John Everard. The show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.